Hey everyone, welcome to State of Sustainability, where we deliver key insights to help sustainability professionals transform the sustainability of their organization. What we're going to discuss today is everything related to budgets and investments. So we're going to unlock uh, how you think about the different categories of your budget, uh, how you make the most out of those categories, how you work with others to unlock their budgets, uh, and really how you maximize the impact that you can have for the effort that you're putting in as a sustainability team. A uh, small side note, we actually wanted to use this session to also talk about carbon pricing and business cases and all this stuff that's kind of related. It ended up being quite a lot to cover in one session. So we've ended up splitting this into two parts. So we've got this part where we're going to really focus on budgets and how to unlock more budgetary capacity. And then you'll see a separate uh, session, a separate podcast episode where we're going to talk about carbon pricing uh, and building business cases. So stay tuned for that if you haven't seen it already. Um, so let's start with anchoring on scope from a budget perspective. Most sustainability teams will have two types of budget. This is budget that you directly control and budget that you influence. Over the last maybe 10, 12, 13 years, I've had the privilege of working with many different types of sustainability teams, probably engaged with over 100 different sustainability teams in some shape or form. And so I've seen a lot of different shapes and sizes. What I'm going to share or outline right now is kind of the, almost like the best in breed of what I, what I see and best in class of what I see. And so uh, take this with, with a bit of flexibility in terms of the, the, the tailoring that you might need to apply this to your organization. Uh, so let's, let's start with maybe looking at the budget that you directly control. This typically includes three aspects. One is headcount. So this is the core team. This is the people sitting within the sustainability function uh, and we'll touch a little on just how big that might be or how small, but you know, headcount is the first one. External spend is usually then a second, which is typically around consulting, software, data, but the sustainability team usually has an element of external discretionary spend that they can put towards services and service providers. And then there's often a third element, which is around project spend. This is, again, often discretionary, often quite small and ring-fenced, and it's usually intended for one-off pilot-style projects. This, this sort of scope of headcount, external spend, and project spend is typically what's within the domain and at the discretion of a sustainability team or sustainability function. There are obviously exceptions. I've seen some cases where the head of sustainability also has the R&D budget, for example, I've seen some instances where the head of operations is also the head of sustainability and so has access to both budgets. So there are a lot of variations, but let's go with this for the purposes of illustration. You then have a budget that you influence and within this, there'll be the budgets of other teams within the organization. Most particularly, I think of three budget pools. One is R&D or research and development. The second is operations. The third is procurement. Typically, these three budgetary pools, these three functions will be important uh, stakeholder sets and important budgetary allocations that you might be able to leverage or tap into. Uh, I'm going to go through each one of these in turn and give a few observations, a few learnings, a few examples. 
to help you make the most out of, again, the sustainability impact that you want to have, but also uh, just make, make money go further, frankly. Uh, so let's, let's talk through each of these in turn. Let's start with team. And so what I've noticed, which is, I think, a function of how new sustainability is as a setup. And so 10 years ago, maybe 5% of Fortune 500 companies had a chief sustainability officer or equivalent, which means that at most 5% of Fortune 500 had a sustainability function. And so the sustainability team is a relatively new team for most organizations. And now those numbers are probably inverted. And I would expect now 95% of Fortune 500 companies have a chief sustainability officer or equivalent or are looking for one or have recently hired one. Uh, and all of those are probably in the process or at some stage in the evolution of setting up a proper sustainability team to drive things forward. What I've noticed, however, is that most companies have the balance off when it comes to the size of this team. And so it's often either too lean to be effective, uh, in which case the team really struggles to get beyond the simple reporting requirements. So a very small sustainability team trying to spread its wings over the entirety of a large organization often just finds that 70% of their time is taken up with data gathering, coordination around data gathering, figuring out what reporting requirements they need to meet, working with externals to inform them on the standards that they need to comply with, and just getting the reports out the door fast enough. Uh, I know one chief sustainability officer, for example, it's a two-person team, it's a several billion dollar revenue business. And I think that for that size of business, you know, really kudos to that team, they're doing an amazing job, but it's genuinely really hard to get beyond the core reporting work when you're that far stretched. Um, at the other extreme, you also find teams that are so large uh, that you wonder how they can be efficient and you wonder how they can avoid the trap of just creating lots of busy work, lots of work for each other and lots of work for all these roles that they have in the sustainability team. And so, you know, again, anecdotally, uh, I was speaking at one point with a, a company that was actually around about the same size as the first example I gave. So in both cases, companies that are around six or $7 billion revenue. In the first instance where it was too, too sort of lean to get beyond reporting, the sustainability team was two people. In the second instance, it was 180 people. And again, I want to just say that again, because no one really fully believes me when I give that example. It's around $7 billion revenue, and they have around 180 people in some shape or form working on sustainability in the organization. If you are a motivated sustainability professional or a sustainability aficionado of some stripe, or just a well-wisher of the climate change mitigation challenge, you're probably thinking, wow, 180 people, that's fantastic. This organization must really be putting all the chips in and just getting all of the impetus that they can and all the momentum that they can to make change happen. And there's probably a big element of truth in that. But at the same time, you kind of wonder that size of function, is it focusing on the most important things? Is it managing to be effective rather than just busy? Uh, is it setting itself up for a right sizing at some point? where at some point, uh, you know, 
a consultancy is going to come in and say, look, this team is bloated. Here's the benchmark. It needs to be one-tenth the size. Uh, and then suddenly you're, you're two steps back. There's a lot of benefit in setting up a sustainability team that is the right size for the challenge that you need today. And then, you know, can be the right size that, that for the challenge that you'll have tomorrow and can be well set up, well empowered to deliver. And any additional budget is then available for the actual changes that you need to make happen and can be deployed towards that change rather than to unnecessary, you know, team size, for instance. Um, anecdotally, from my network, the impression I have from seeing the teams that I believe are performing well is that the most effective sustainability size uh, for the team has a ratio of roughly 1.5 dedicated full-time employees for every billion dollars of revenue. I realize this is remarkably specific. Uh, and again, this may or may not apply to, to you or to your organization. It has held true across most organizations that I've seen, certainly over the last couple of years, where you know, if you think about an organization that's maybe several hundred million dollars of revenue, often one full-time person can actually be enough for putting their arms around the challenge and managing the coordination and so on. And again, this might be one entirely dedicated person, like a sustainability manager or something, but it could also be 70% of one person's time with a bit of help from others in the organization. And that can generally work. Um, and then, you know, this number sort of also more or less scales. Obviously, you know, take this with a bit of pinch of salt, right? Maybe it's a bit higher, a bit lower, but roughly I've seen this is a reasonably decent rule of thumb. Um, at the same time, I've seen some organizations that have a third of that as a ratio to others that have, you know, four times or more. So uh, there's a, I would say that the, you want to make sure that you're landing somewhere within the, within the right space. When you're negotiating headcount budget internally, Let's talk about that because, again, this session is a little bit around uh, just general norms and examples, but it's also supposed to give you a good set of tips for you to actually go and frame the work that you're doing. And so when you're negotiating headcount budget internally, I feel that it's always useful for you to go with industry benchmarks. This is how most, most high-performing management teams are used to working in the context of every other function. For most established businesses, at some point in their life cycle, uh, and probably even at multiple points in their life cycle, they will employ third parties to come in and help them figure out what the right size is for different functions and teams versus benchmarks from the industry. You can get ahead of that by bringing your own benchmarks. These can usually be uh, fairly difficult to find externally. It's not like there's a, a good you know, publication from a reliable source that gives you these benchmarks, but uh, you, can, you can do a few things. So one option is speak to your peers, speak to your customers, speak to your suppliers. There are a lot of sustainability conferences out there, uh, and you'll probably find that you'll get some pretty good insights from just the 20 companies that you have the best relationships with. And you can then cite this in your internal discussions around how big the team should be. You can also go one step further in those conversations and you can try and understand within the context of the team, who's doing what, how does the role work, how does role definition work. Uh, this is a really amorphous space where most organizations don't have a very clear idea of job descriptions. 
which is kind of, you know, unfortunate because there are a lot of roles being advertised for sustainability professionals where the actual role doesn't match the job description or the job description is incomplete or very high level. And so I think there's generally a lot of room to move the whole, the, the, the whole sort of, you know, uh, effort forward by engaging with other companies and sharing notes on the size of the team and the focus and the roles. Uh, the second approach that you can also go with is something like LinkedIn, for instance, where you can just uh, look up other organizations of similar size, similar shape, similar geography, and try and get a feel for how many people have a sustainability-oriented designation or role type. And this will at least give you roughly a flavor of uh, whether your existing team is severely underweight versus the type of challenge that your peers have identified. Or if your sustainability team is bizarrely five times the size of the peers that you're, you're competing with at a similar scale, for instance. So uh, bringing those benchmarks is going to be super important as you think of what the right size of team is. And by extension, how much budget you need to have available from your discretionary budget to deploy towards the sustainability team and the core people going into battle with you. Um, Let's move on now to the next category of your discretionary spend, uh, which is around service providers and third parties that you're going to be working with. Uh, so within that, what I find is that most teams don't appropriately assess the value of their external spend, and they don't really think about this strategically. Uh, and you know there there are a lot of examples that I've experienced recently or seen recently from the software space. You know, for example, I I I know one company that has a particular tool for scope one and two, and then they're using a different tool for scope three, and then they're using a different tool or service provider for lifecycle assessments, uh, and then they have a, a third party consultant coming in to try and help them make sense of it all and consolidate it it gets really messy and it probably still has gaps in what they're looking for. There's a lot of room for them to take a step back and almost clean sheet it and say, what do we actually need? What are the problems that we're solving? What are the capability gaps that we currently have? And where do we need to bring in expertise uh, to solve those gaps? Within the expertise category, um, I often find that sustainability teams look for consultants where they should look for software. So for example, if you think of a predictable recurring task like emissions measurement, in many organizations, this is a good software type challenge and actually bringing in a consultancy to do this in a repeated way again and again and again is not the most efficient uh, way to work because it's a fresh exercise pretty much each time which means that it takes up a lot of internal spend from your side in terms of your team capacity and the, uh, the time and capacity that you're going to call on your colleagues for. Uh, and so that internal spend actually ends up becoming big and, uh, and, and actually you're not getting any repeat advantage from that. So that's a good example of where you should devote your budget to software rather than to, for example, a consultancy. Uh, by contrast, Often the same sustainability teams lean on software providers and software support teams where they should seek consultants. So for example, they'll have, let's say, a software provider working with them on a particular challenge, but they'll lean on that software provider for 
uh, ad hoc subjective ad hoc tasks or subjective one-off tasks, uh, like for example, target setting. Software can be a great place to store targets and even, you know, to some extent build and share and collaborate on targets. It's usually a difficult context in which to summarize all of the business assumptions that you're going to need to have involved in target setting without the support of extensive human input um, where, where, where some human being needs to start go rooting around and facilitating all the conversations and collaborating and making sure that stakeholder alignment happens at the management level and the board level and so on. And so rather than calling on software support teams again and again and again to help you with these challenges, you're better off actually engaging a consultant. And the reason for that is that often software support hours can become more expensive on an hourly basis than consultant support hours because it's not part of the core operating model of the software provider. And so ideally, you want to work with different types of third party in their specialized skill set. Software providers will be happiest if you work with them in the context of their software. Uh, and consultancies will be happiest if you work with them in the context of big picture strategic topics, usually. I say this not just as a former consultant, but knowing many other consultants in many other firms, most of them are excited and get out of bed for the big, the big strategic challenges rather than repeat mundane tasks that many of them would rather you used software for. So I would just think about, about that. Um, another aspect while we're talking about internal and external spend is that I often find that uh, sustainability teams and frankly, business teams in general tend to discount internal spend versus external spend. What I mean by that is that if a particular task or activity is going to take up, uh, let's say, $100 worth of someone's time inside the business and $100 worth of an external provider or a third party, they will tend to mentally or literally in an actual table discount the $100 internal spend or treat it as a lower cost to the business versus the external spend. And that's not wrong. Uh, in a lot of ways, that makes sense. Uh, and in a lot of ways, you know, that $100 may actually work out to be cheaper because you squeeze into people's, you know, marginal time, for instance, or you can kind of make it work in the context of an overall work package. But uh, you want to understand what that discount is because often sustainability teams land in the wrong place in terms of the trade-off. They try and, let's say, save $20,000 worth of external spend by minimizing the use of consultants or minimizing the use of software. And they end up creating $100,000 of internal spend because now they're trying to get people who aren't well-versed in the tasks that they need uh, to really start focusing on something entirely different. And there's a learning curve and there's redundant time and so on. And so just understanding what that discount is that you or your organization are going to apply is useful also in the context of making a business case. And we'll talk about that a little more in, in a separate session. Um, lastly, just in this sort of topic, even though sustainability is a design heavy space, a lot of us are kind of, you know, already used to the idea of slick, high quality sustainability reports. I still see a general absence 
in high quality, compelling design work. And uh, I find that this is, uh, this is less true in the largest companies like Fortune 100 companies that have the, the cash and the experience and the PR department and the marketing department uh, to facilitate going out and producing really high quality visual materials. And it's less true also in small consumer oriented, uh, let's say fashion apparel sorts of businesses, creative industry businesses, where again, the value of high quality design and visual content is well established. But I find that this absence of good quality design work is true in the sort of the middle of the range between these two. So like, you know, a billion dollar revenue business, a half a billion dollar revenue business, uh, you know, anywhere up to maybe 10, 15, uh, $20 billion of revenue. I often find they under index on high quality visual materials to communicate their sustainability vision and strategy, both internally and externally. And, um, the, you know, I, I am fully on board with the idea of spending money on substance rather than style. But sometimes style is important. And this is because it gives you the goodwill. It buys you the goodwill from others to really go for substance. And so, you know, I would say having a good visual designer on board early in, the, in your sustainability journey and trajectory, and especially someone who understands the vision and understands what you're trying to communicate, having that person involved early is going to pay dividends later because it will help you land your message internally and externally. And you want that person, again, just to repeat, you want that person to understand what you're trying to achieve and you want to work with the same person over time because a message is about narrative as much as it is about visual content. And so you want to make sure that you have someone who captures where you're going with this and can land the right messages in the right way. Um, just to summarize a little on this sort of external spend piece, right? We've, we've talked to, you know, about software and consultants and designers and so on. And uh, what I would say is that for all your external spend, take a return on investment approach. Build the model, make the case, contrast interventions against each other, you know, potentially use a marginal abatement cost curve to do that or a similar logic. Uh, and the exercise in itself will help you start to speak to your team and others in terms of value creation, and it'll help you align other business stakeholders. Most of us in sustainability don't do this enough. And most of us will frankly continue not doing this enough until finance teams uh, keep pushing back on our interventions and we start to change how we communicate. So uh, I would just sort of bear that, bear that return on investment logic in mind with all the external spend as well. Let's now talk about um, unlocking the value from project spending. And so let me start, let me just maybe start with what I mean by project spending. Uh, I find that most sustainability teams have some element of discretionary project spend or some element of spend that the organization is willing to give them to spend on discrete projects. And uh, I find that a lot of teams will, um, will think in a very short-term, immediate lens on how they deploy that. Whereas actually, the teams that go the furthest are the, those that are very intentional in how they deploy it. 
uh, they think about how to use project spending to unlock more spending for the scale-up, to unlock more budget for the scale-up. They see the project uh, not as a pilot for a large abstract intervention that is going to be multi-stakeholder and no one is ever going to buy in, but more like if you were actually setting up a startup business within your business uh, and you actually had certain stage gates and you, you have a realistic shot at unlocking a scale up at the conclusion of the first stage gate, how would you approach this? And so uh, let, me, let me kind of maybe give a few thoughts on how, how I would approach this, not just as an, as an advisor and someone who's worked with sustainability teams, but also frankly, as, as the founder of a sustainability uh, startup myself. So I would sort of think about three things. Uh, one is the promise of cash flow. Anyone who's been following my content, whether this podcast or otherwise, will be familiar with the fact that I basically always talk about money. And I realize that that seems somewhat weird and somewhat mercenary. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate all the stuff about not being able to serve God and mammon, for instance. But like, I, I honestly think we don't talk enough about money when we're trying to get sustainability stuff done. And so uh, I, would, I would look to where the cash flow streams are that are going to come from the project that you're deploying, maybe not in its, in, in its incarnation as a project, but in its scale-up mode. So the best sustainability interventions should eventually pay for themselves in some shape or form either a cost reduction or a new revenue stream. So the promise of cash flow is going to be important. The next thing I would think about is, who is the entrepreneur that you're putting behind this initiative? And I do not mean you need to hire someone externally. This can be someone within the sustainability team. Even better, it can be someone outside the sustainability team and in some other function within the business. Uh, this person does, however, need to be wedded to the long-term vision of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, I found sometimes the most excited, most passionate, most capable people to involve can be the engineers, for instance, within a manufacturing-oriented business, where you might often find someone who's really committed to a particular type of technology application or a particular type of approach. And in the back of their mind, they've often had like, why doesn't my company take this seriously? It would save money and it would also save emissions, for instance. And you can, if you can find that person and you can bring them in and you can say, look, this may be a side hustle, but we'd love for you to own this project and be involved in it. And the win for you is also, if this works, then you can actually make, make, a, new, you know, make a new revenue stream, make a new business out of this within our organization. Uh, I think about a... A, a sort of a, a, a life sciences business that I know, which specializes in, you have a whole range of products and they're, I think, especially well known for providing inputs into the agriculture industry, whether it's new feeds, new additives, new, new formulations, et cetera. And within that business, uh, it merged with multiple businesses and they found this one person in the, one of the companies that they'd merged with who was super passionate about driving down emissions for livestock. And they gave this person the task of figuring out what they do with all the data that they have sitting around and how do they monetize this data and how do they use it to engage customers in the livestock industry where they could maybe build a new business line. And this person has now over time assembled a 20, 30 person team around them. They're out there at the conferences. They're out there pitching the idea to customers. 
And they're really generating a lot of positive brand um, for this business with its customers. And they're developing effectively a new business. That sort of person is who you want involved owning this new project that you're starting with and owning the vision for scaling it up. Let's, we've talked a bit about promise of cash flow and the entrepreneur or the owner. Let's also talk about pragmatic innovation. I find that sustainability teams, like many startups, frankly, often make the mistake of innovating on two fronts simultaneously. You're trying to find a cash flow stream that doesn't exist, and you're trying to deploy a technology that hasn't really been tested. This is a surefire way to make your job twice as hard or maybe even four times as hard uh, and increase your chances of failure. And so what I would look to do is innovate on, you know, one of these two streams, for instance. Let me give an example. Uh, I see a lot of uh, companies in the apparel space, and I also see a lot of really promising startups in the apparel space. And if you think about uh, two trajectories or two directions of travel around how you minimize, increase the circularity of apparel products, you can have um, uh, apparel sharing and you can have uh, apparel resale. And these two are actually quite different. We may think of them the same way, but they're actually quite different. One is around how do I lend you my parts of my wardrobe and you'll then kind of return the part of my that 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 item. You know, I'm lending you, let's say, a, you know, a, a suit or or a dress or something, and you'll kind of uh, you'll use it, and then you'll return it to me, and then it gets lent out to someone else. Uh, and that's kind of one model. The other is just a simple resale model, where it's it's still effectively a one way transaction. It's just of something that's been used, but it's a sale. You're not expecting the person that you sell it to necessarily to be the one who returns it to you. Um, and in these two cases one of them is significantly more complex than the other. Can you guess which one it is? It's the first, just spoiler, it's the first. And the reason is that in the first one, you're innovating in multiple directions all at once. You're trying to get the whole logistics route to work where you're, you're sending something out, you're getting it back. And that needs to work not just efficiently and at quality, but also cost effectively. At the same time, uh, you're also trying to make sure that the product is kind of cleaned, not just once, but multiple times so that it can constantly be sanitary and, and, and you know, safe for the, the, the other person to use and appealing as well. You're innovating on all these fronts. You're also, at the same time as you're managing these complex logistical challenges, you're also trying to innovate on consumer preferences, where you're trying to get the consumer comfortable with the idea that they're going to be using something that has already been used. So you have twice as many, you have two, two different sets of challenge or innovation that you're managing at the same time. In the second example, you're actually only really managing one of those. Primarily what you're managing for is the consumer behavior aspect, which is, am I comfortable wearing something that has already been worn before? Uh, and, in, and for the rest of it, it's, it's basically, again, a one-way traffic effectively, right? You don't have to keep the repeat aspect going uh, of, of cleaning and, and, and logistics and so on, it's a lot simpler. And so I would encourage all sustainability teams when they think about uh, projects that they would like to scale up to be pragmatic in what types of innovation they're trying to explore and deploy to, to not innovate on too many fronts at the same time. It just makes life harder and increases the risk of failure. Um, so, you know, hopefully that, that makes, a, make, makes some sense in terms of how you're going to think about projects. 
uh, you should bear in mind that you kind of want to make sure you, you identify future cash flows, uh, you identify an entrepreneur or owner of the project, and you focus on, on pragmatic innovations that you're going to, uh, you're going to go out to market with. Note that this doesn't mean that the sustainability team needs to fully keep the project within its own boundaries. Uh, you don't need to, for example, build the new products that you want to put out into the world. Uh, but you can be the one to initiate the conceptualization and the market research and defining the needs from a prototype perspective. And then ideally, you should actually be able to start influencing other parts of the organization to take your ideas, maybe your projects to scale up or even to be involved in the project delivery themselves. And that'll help you start spreading the load when it comes to budgets, uh, time, energy, resources of different types. So let's talk about the budget that you influence. We've talked a bit uh, about the budget that you have directly in your control and the stuff that is your discretionary spend. Um, and, and now we're going to talk about the budgets that actually aren't in your control, but that you might have the potential uh, to influence and to sort of leverage for the achievement of your sustainability goals. So, um, Let's first look at kind of what your goals and priorities are when it comes to different budget owning functions. Uh, you should again, start with business value and you should understand the motivations of your business, the KPIs and, and the goals uh, of the overall business, but also the specific functions that you're going to be working with because you're going to need to relate to individual functions uh, in the context of their goals rather than your goals. Uh, in some cases, one of your initiatives, for instance, may actually have dependencies on multiple functions. And so you're going to need to communicate your initiative in the context of their goals. And that's going to be a big challenge for you. But the upside is that if you get it right, you can also often uh, persuade them to deploy aspects of their budget, which will usually be more considerable than yours, towards achieving the goals of this initiative that you've created. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, I'm going to take a business example, and then I, I want to work it all the way through with you uh, across the different functions that you might be involving. So uh, this is a, a fairly common initiative. Let's say you're a beverage business. You're in the, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, alcohol, beverages, uh, spirits, soft drinks, whatever it might be. And there's a category of intervention for you that is product redesign. This will usually include some aspect of packaging because in the beverage industry, a lot of the emissions contribution, for example, is, is coming from the actual packaging material that you're using, whether it's glass or aluminum or plastic or whatever. Uh, and so the, the product redesign is often about the packaging that you're going to use. Let's say that within this category, you've identified an intervention that you think is really promising, uh, which is uh, you want to optimize the size of the stem. And so if you think of the stem of like a, a beer bottle, for example, the stem represents a lot of packaging for very little volume, very little product volume. The ratio of packaging content to actually what you want to be using out of that product is much worse than it is for the rest of the, the, the bottle. And so you want to optimize the dimensions of the bottle, for example, either the, the shape or the stem, you want to optimize some of that aspect to improve the volume ratios. And so let's walk through what this means for different functions. I want to start with R&D. Uh, so here's how I see this playing out with the R&D function. 
from an R&D perspective, you already identify within the sustainability team that there will likely be concerns around how the product tastes. Uh, is it going to, you know, is, is this change going to impact not just the taste, but even, even maybe how the consumer perceives uh, or experiences the product? You know, think about someone going out to a, a football match, right? And they want to hold the beer by the stem, right? Maybe there are other examples as well. But there's this whole aspect of the customer experience and the product experience by that customer that you as the sustainability team don't really understand and may not have all the right resources and capabilities to bottom out. So you're going to need the help of R&D to solve for these questions. But how do you get R&D excited and engaged enough to be involved with you and to work hand in glove? You need to understand their motivations. You need to understand how your product redesign intervention can lead to a win for them. It's not good enough for you to say, we're doing this for the planet. It needs to work for their KPIs because you're going to ask them for resources, whether it's time, money, or expertise. And so one of the important things is to figure out how is the R&D team incentivized? Now, maybe the R&D team, for instance, has some sort of a, uh, a KPI related to a, a new product development. Can they create a new format for a SKU and can they hit certain levels of sales numbers for that new SKU, for example? And that's, that's linked back to the incentives of the R&D team. In that instance, can you actually help build the fact base for the R&D team by already maybe even canvassing some consumers from the sustainability angle, asking consumers if they would be more likely to buy a certain variation of product at the same price if they knew that it had a lower emissions footprint but it looked different or felt different in the hand. And actually, if you, if you build that you know, pre-business case almost, if you build that fact base and take it to the R&D team, you've done them a favor by doing a early part of their work for them, and you've established the commonality of language with them that will help them already understand that you're kind of on the same wavelength in this. And so you can start moving in the same direction. Let's move on to see how this plays out with the operations function. So your new product design works just fine from a taste and preference perspective. It's not expected to negatively affect consumer buying patterns. You hope consumers will love it. You're not sure, but you're reasonably confident that they won't uh, dislike it or you won't have a negative impact on, on sales, for instance. Um, but you've ended up changing the shape of the bottle. And while this may optimize material use, it might affect the efficiency of the crates that you're using to transport those bottles. So this is now looking like an operational question. It's not one necessarily for the R&D team to solve because the operations team is what deals with packing, packing up the product and getting it to distribution. Uh, in this case, what makes your operations team tick? Does the upside in having less product mass to transport make up for the downside in having to use more crates per unit of product? Uh, how do you make this a win for operations, uh, which helps get them more aligned and also helps you find a home for any of the additional, let's say, transport-related costs or you know, uh, crate-related costs that you might have so that this doesn't need to come out of your budget, your discretionary budget as a sustainability team, but can instead be owned by operations? 
making this a win for operations in some shape or form, whether it's fuel cost or material wastage or otherwise, uh, will, will help make this a win for you as well. But more importantly, we'll get them aligned for the longer term. Always remember uh, the people you're working with on your early initiatives are likely the same ones you're going to work with all the way through your sustainability program. And so building goodwill early is always super important. Um, let's now move to the third type of function that you're most commonly going to be working with. Uh, and in a way, this is probably the most important because for most, almost every company pretty much, right? There are probably some exceptions, but they don't come to mind right now. For pretty much every company, 85, 90% plus of your emissions are going to be supply chain oriented emissions. Uh, and so being able to work with the procurement team and the purchasing team and function within your organization is always going to be important. So let's take the same initiative. Uh, you've rounded out uh, with the R&D team. You know the product tastes fine, feels fine to consumers. Uh, you've managed the operational aspects, but you still need to find a supplier who's going to work with you on this new bottle type. Because what you've kind of redesigned, you know, you and, and a bit of help from, from your friends in the business have designed, that's maybe not fully conventional, or at least it's not what your business has been used to buying. And so you actually now need to find a collaborative vendor who's going to work with you on, you know, effectively, again, taking a bet and, and, and creating something new. Um, so you're going to engage them in a discussion. And if you engage them directly yourselves as the sustainability team, uh, this will probably come down again to cost. And so as a sustainability team, you can try and work directly with the sustainability team on the side of the vendor, but they also have limited budget. And so what they're going to want to do is involve their commercial team. So you end up with this interesting dynamic of you and your sustainability team speaking to the commercial team of your supplier. And what they're going to come back to you with is, you know, we love the idea. Fantastic. Great for the world. Great for, you know, great for the, the consumer. Brilliant. It's going to cost more. And are you guys ready to pay up? And at this point, or even frankly, earlier than this point, you, you will wish that you'd involved your procurement function in this conversation as well. And the reason is that your procurement team will not only have a much larger budget, which can absorb these elements, uh, but there are also several other levers that they have available, which they can use to influence your packaging vendor. Uh, one of these is the size of the contract that you're giving them. Another is the duration of the contract that you're giving them, and there may well be others. Uh, these will be visible to the procurement function, but not visible typically to you as the sustainability team. So here you now need to again think, is there a win for the procurement team uh, where, you know, maybe you can, this new product that you've designed can actually reduce the amount of packaging content required per unit of product for your business. And that helps the, the procurement team hit their KPI, which is, you know, 15% cost reduction year on year, for instance, across packaging material, right? Uh, probably that's a bit on the high side, but you know, imagine that they have a, they will have their own KPI for cost reduction. And if you can actually help them hit that overall in terms of net material, then uh, leaning forward a bit on a new product specification might actually seem like a, a great bargain to them as well. And so, you know, just to round out a little on kind of having talked through how you work with the R&D team, how you work with the operations team, and how you work with the procurement team, you want to make the most of existing budgets before you use up your own 
much more scarce sustainability budget. And by doing that, and you know, rough, rough estimate is that these other budgets that we've talked about, R&D, operations and procurement, are going to be not just 10 or 20 times bigger than yours, but you know, 100 times, right, or, or more in magnitude versus your budget. There is much more space to absorb a lot of these costs and expenditures in those budgets than there is in yours. And so you definitely want to start engaging these stakeholders early, even if what you're looking at scoping out is, um, is a pilot initiative, right, or, or just something to get going with and to test you still want to try and tap into these other budgets as much as you can. So just to summarize what we've covered, right? We, we've sort of really, what, what I really wanted to do is to dive into all things sustainability budget related to help you figure out how to get the most out of the resources available to you in the fulfillment of what is likely to be an expensive sustainability program for all of us. Every business is going through this. And one where it's, it, will feel like both a marathon and a sprint, frankly, where you're, you're kind of having to go faster than your organization is used to in terms of sustainability change, but you're also have to, you're going to have to keep that pace going for longer than most transformations last in your organization. And so in this context, what we've talked about is the two big buckets to think about, one definitely smaller than the other. The smaller one is the discretionary budget that you have available which is typically headcount, external spend, a lot of it on services, uh, and, then, and then project spend, those, those typical categories. Uh, and then the much larger budgetary pool, which is where you don't have direct control, but you have influence. And that's you know, often going to be R&D, operations, procurement, maybe a few other categories. And what we've tried to focus on is how can you think about getting the most out of the resources that you have full control over? And how can you really set up, for example, the right strategy to work with, uh, to build your own team and the right size of a team to build. And how do you then approach, for example, working with external partners and optimize where you use software versus where you use consultants and how you think about internal or external spend. Uh, and then we've talked about how you look at project setup, for instance, and how you try and identify cash flow streams that the project will benefit from identify an entrepreneur or owner to lead the project, uh, and then really think about uh, how you're going to bring that project to scale by using a pragmatic choice of innovations. Uh, and then in terms of influencing uh, other budgetary categories, we've talked about how you try and focus on speaking the same language as the other function, helping them hit their KPIs, involving them early, involving them consistently, uh, because you're going to need their support going forward. So hopefully this has been helpful for you. Uh, a key element of your approach to budgets is going to be thinking through business case development and carbon prices. Stay, uh, uh, stay watchful for that episode as well. We'll cover those topics in detail also. But if you have any other questions in the meantime, you know, thanks for listening to today's episode. And for any of the questions that you have, uh, just drop me a message uh, or join one of any of the monthly LinkedIn Lives that we run. Uh, which you can find on my LinkedIn. Feel free to follow me if you are excited by some of the content that I'm sharing and want to hear more. Thank you so much.